My talk is going to focus on how uh, uh, we have got to where we are in terms of uh, evolution of SARS-CoV-2 and, of course, addressing the issue of variants. So um, back in uh, 2020, when uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 uh, was really disseminating around the world, um, some estimates were, were, were made about how quickly this virus was mutating. Of course, we could have applied uh, coronavirus sort of um, statistics to this, but, if, but we wanted to measure it uh, uh, in humans as this was a new virus. Uh, and, and the global um, mutation rate was estimated at between two and three per month, so around 24 mutations per year looking at global phylogenies. And so these are mutations that are select, uh, not only generated, but selected for and transmitted. Um, so that's a really modest rate. It's lower than uh, influenza, for example. Uh, and this could be explained by uh, the fact that this virus had a short incubation period up to you know, between two and four days. 25% um, uh, of transmission was asymptomatic. In other words, uh, you didn't know you were infected. Uh, and therefore, the virus was coming in um, infecting uh, individuals very quickly, generating lots of virus uh, in a sort of hit-and-run approach. Um, and, and this means that the immune system really did not get a chance to uh, respond in terms of the adaptive arm. Uh, and therefore, the selection pressure on the virus was, was fairly small. And this is um, uh, uh, why we believe that the mutation rate was relatively low uh, uh, initially. Now, uh, in terms of the next slide, uh, we can see here what's actually happened. Uh, so that estimate of two to three per year um, has uh, somewhat changed uh, in that now we really are not, it's not very useful to look at uh, uh, mutation rates um, uh, as a function of time because variants have changed the paradigm for this in, in a way that kind of parallels antigenic um, shift versus drift. There's, there, there, have been, there have been these stepwise changes uh, in virus um, uh, diversity, as you can see from this, uh, this figure here, uh, which essentially shows you uh, the, the global phylogeny of uh, a representative sample of viruses uh, uh, and, and broken down by variants. So you've got the alpha um, up at the top, gamma, uh, then beta, and then delta at the bottom. Of course, this is a new nomenclature um, uh, reflecting the fact that we were trying to get away from complex numbers and letters and also um, determining things by country where they had emerged or identified first. So, so I think the nomenclature is much clearer now uh, and easier to discuss. But of course, just for those of you who um, haven't uh, kind of uh, caught up with this, the alpha variant is, uh, the, was formerly known as the B1.117 B uh, or the Kent or UK variant. Gamma uh, uh, is the, uh, uh, the P1 uh, variant, which emerged in Brazil. And the beta variant is the variant which emerged in South Africa, the B1.351. And down at the bottom, we've got uh, Delta, uh, which, is, uh, which was uh, isolated in India and uh, designated B1.617.2. Next slide, please. So how have these, um, these, how have these variants emerged? Here, here, here are three of them, uh, alpha, beta, and gamma. Uh, uh, these are images of the spike protein. And you can see these are changes uh, relative to the Wuhan virus that, that emerged first. Um, and you can see there are, a, there are a number of different changes, um, some of them in consistent regions. Um, and you can see here that, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the, num the sheer number of changes occurring is really remarkable. And uh, we and others described how this uh, most likely happens, which is uh, chronic infection within host. So uh, the, the, the paradigm I described to you earlier is what happens in maybe 95% of individuals. But in a small minority, uh, SARS-CoV-2 sets up a long-term infection uh, over weeks and even months in which uh, the virus is continually shed 
in the presence of an active immune system or a partially active immune system. And the virus is essentially training itself uh, uh, through selection and propagation of mutations to overcome both neutralizing antibodies and to a lesser extent, uh, potentially uh, uh, cytotoxic T cells. So this is why uh, the, the, the spike protein has uh, um, accumulated so many different mutations. And, you can, and, and, and if you generate these mutations uh, in vitro or you isolate these viruses, you'll see that um, these, these variants are, are less sensitive to neutralizing antibodies generated not only from past infection in convalescent plasma, but also uh, in individuals vaccinated with Wuhan 1 spike proteins. You can see that the sera containing neutralizing antibodies are less able to recognize these variants than they are the Wuhan 1 strain. And that is telling you that these variants have arisen in the context of an immune system that... Uh, 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 that, that uh, and that these mutations, some of the key mutations, especially in the RBD receptor binding domain, highlighted here in yellow, um, uh, confer some degree of resistance to neutralizing antibodies. We're now learning much more. For example, the NTD uh, is also a key area for um, escaping neutralizing antibodies. Uh, and and, and um, this is a paradigm which we have to understand in order to predict what's going to happen next. Next slide, please. So I've discussed a little bit about uh, uh, spike mutations. I haven't gone into too much detail as to what specific ones are doing, because you, as you can see, there is a large range. But the key thing here is that um, uh, the clinical trials that have been conducted seem to reflect the, uh, the loss of neutralization activity that we see in vitro. In other words, um, clinical studies, for example, in South Africa with Chadox-1 showed only around 10 to 20 percent protection against symptomatic infection uh, uh, in the context of the South African or the beta variant. And that's quite striking. And it mirrors very well in vitro's, in vitro, the in vitro data that shows loss of sensitivity of the uh, beta variant to sera from vaccinees or from convalescents. So the figure on the left is essentially showing you different vaccines and the neutralization potency uh, uh, in vitro and comparing that to the clinical observations. And you can see that there appears to be a pattern. On the right is showing you data specifically from Chadox-1. Uh, and this is um, prospective data, so much more powerful than the figure on the left, um, because here they've measured neutralizing uh, antibody titers and generated a cutoff here of, of a titer of 185, um, showing you the cutoff at which you're more likely to be infected despite vaccination. Uh, uh, and that is really important data because it's telling us that neutralizing antibodies are a correlative protection and it's giving you some kind of uh, idea as to what levels you need to achieve through vaccination, especially against variants of concern. Next slide, please. The, um, the thing to bear in mind throughout all of this is that there is your average patient and then, of course, we have the elderly who are most vulnerable. Uh, and their responses uh, are clearly not going to be the same as young individuals. And this figure shows you from one of our studies uh, on, on the, um, the, the uh, BioNTech uh, vaccine, uh, the mRNA vaccine. And after first dose on the left, you can see that there's a significant drop off after the age of 80 in terms of responses after that dose. Um, after the second dose, there is a, a partial correction of that. And on the right, you can see the, the, the responses to different variants uh, by age group. And these are uh, after the second dose, you can see that the, even the elderly are reaching uh, reasonable levels of protection. Um, but of course, when you get into the variants, you can see here that the, the loss of um, uh, the, the, number, the proportion of individuals with, with, with undetectable neutralizing um, antibodies is higher in the elderly compared to the younger individuals. So uh, the, we need to remember that minor, minor, uh, uh, people in certain parts of the population, such as the elderly, the, um, those who are on immune suppression, diabetics, 
potentially the obese. There are there are all these risk groups of people who will um, not respond as well to vaccination. And we really need to um, uh, do more work behind that because those individuals will be less well protected. Next slide, please. So I thought we would um, uh, uh, um, uh, take this to conclusion where, by discussing the Delta variant. This is what's ever on, on everyone's mind. Uh, the, the, this chart here shows you the rise of Delta, both in the UK and in India. And you can see that's um, colored by um, a sort of light purple. Uh, and you can see that uh, pre-2021, uh, there were a, a mixture of variants circulating. In the UK, it was largely B117. And you can see that the rise to total, almost total dominance of the Delta variant has taken place in a relatively short space of time in two countries. And now you could replicate these data sets across many other countries. So uh, including South Africa, where, where beta was dominant, you know, this is the virus that we thought was the most worrisome. Uh, it's had the largest degree of immune evasion. And yet Delta has completely taken over um, the, 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 uh, the, the, the new infections in South Africa. N next slide, please. So what are the causes of that? Well, I'm not going to show you the neutralization data, but there, there is a modest degree of loss of neutralization activity, uh, comparable, we think, to the P1 or, uh, or gamma um, uh, variant. Uh, uh, and moreover, we think that the more important aspect of this virus is that it seems to have managed to become much more infectious and transmissible. And there is some data here from our lab that pre-printed recently showing you a comparison between the alpha variant, the B117, and the 617.2, the delta variant. And of course, if you turn your minds back, we were pretty fearful of the alpha variant when it arose because the estimates were this was a virus that was 50% more transmissible than the Wuhan variant. And now um, uh, you can see from these replication data that the delta variant uh, is, is, out, is, 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 is demonstrating increased kinetics by at least an order of magnitude, at least tenfold. Uh, uh, in figure A uh, and in figure B showing you the, the amount of protein produced uh, uh, by these viruses. Uh, if you show, if you look to the uh, to the Western blot, the, the black bands there showing you the spike protein, you can see that um, for B617.2 that there's um, quite a lot more uh, of the uh, uh, of, of the cleaved spike uh, uh, in the bottom part of that panel. So this virus is not only generating more protein, uh, uh, leading to more infection events, it is actually generating more of its spike and more of the cleaved form. And that may be relevant to why it's uh, more infectious. The bottom panel uh, shows you the data um, uh, in, a, in, in supernatants. This is a productive virus rather than intracellular virus. And you can see some of the similar, similar patterns in panels C and D where the 617.2 is uh, producing more virus. So this, we believe, is one of the drivers behind the global spread of the virus combined with that immune evasion uh, components means that this is a really formidable um, uh, uh, virus that we have to deal with. Final slide, please. And so in summary, uh, uh, the alpha variant showed modestly reduced susceptibility to vaccine-listed antibodies. We didn't show that data because of time, uh, but it was it does have a small degree of loss. And we uh, we see we do see breakthrough infection with that with alpha. But of course, vaccine efficacy is extremely high against B117, you know, in, 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 in excess of 90% in general. The beta variant as I mentioned, has the highest degree of immune escape, and yet uh, does not seem to be uh, competing well against Delta, probably because it has infectivity or in transmissibility that is not quite as high. The gamma variant, uh, uh, or P1, is intermediate um, and uh, localized in, in many respects in terms of its geographic distribution. The Delta variant is the one we really need to worry about because this combines immune escape and significant increased um, infectivity in one package, and we have not seen that before, and that is why 
this virus is globally dominant. Uh, uh, what I didn't also show you is that there are implications for therapeutic monoclonals uh, because Delta seems to have reduced um, activity against some of the monoclonals in clinical um, uh, development. And uh, uh, with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and uh, uh, look forward to your questions. I will be addressing this topic from a clinical primary care perspective. As Alex mentioned, I'm a family doctor from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. In late February and March 2021, which was the beginning of the third wave in Ontario, Canada, the Alpha variant was commonly being reported. Public health was sequencing all positive cases for variants. What was unusual in this wave was the patients presented differently. We saw many individuals less than 50 that were quite symptomatic. Many had crackles in their lungs at first presentation and lower oxygen saturations. In earlier waves, we also noticed that patients that got worse typically got worse after day eight of symptom onset. We also know in the earlier waves, hospitalizations were greatest day eight to 15 after symptom onset. In this third wave, patients were quite sick even by day four or five after onset. Next slide. This slide, I will be discussing challenges that COVID patients had accessing care. There were three ways patients found out in Canada if they were COVID positive after being tested an online portal, a call from a public health individual, or a call from their primary care provider. Unfortunately, if they did get a call from the primary care provider, this was often the only point of contact during their illness. Patients were told to follow public health guidelines or to go to the emergency department if worse. Essentially left with a hope and a prayer. Moreover, many primary care providers were close to in-person care and therefore not very available. Many individuals reluctant to go to the hospital were reluctant to go to the hospital. Furthermore, paramedics often discourage patients to go to the hospital. Subsequently, many patients waited at home until disease had progressed before seeking care. Next slide. In this slide, I will talk about what strategies work to provide care for COVID patients. Our office felt the need to prioritize care for these patients. We had a separate office entrance at the clinic dedicated to COVID patients. Often we made arrangements to come in before regular office hours. We provided home visits for those that were unable to come to the office for one reason or another, often because they were too sick. Our clinic obviously took every precaution with all encounters, wearing full protective equipment and ensuring staff were vaccinated once they became available, once the vaccines became available. These assessments we provided relieved anxiety 
provided comfort and guidance. Now also for individuals with symptoms and not yet confirmed positive, we took nasopharyngeal samples while they remained in their cars. The specimens were subsequently sent to either the public health department or fortunately, because we were also doing some research trials in treatment of COVID, we also had a PCR device in the office for on-site testing. In conclusion, I would say, ultimately, we made a great effort to be available to COVID patients. And I believe in primary care, this is essential and it makes a difference. Thanks, Alex. So thank you very much for the opportunity to participate in this great panel and to bring a view from Latin America that's a usually forgotten region. So COVID-19 evolved into an unmatched global public health emergency and Latin America has been severely affected by the rapid spread of the disease. Despite representing only 8.4% of the world population, Latin America accounts for 20% of all COVID-19 cases and 32% of COVID-19 related deaths worldwide. To date, more than 36 million cases and over a million deaths have been reported in the region. Next, please. The Latin America response to COVID-19 has been hampered by inadequately resourced health systems, widespread health and socioeconomic inequalities, and a weak state capacity to mount a comprehensive health, social, and economic responses to the pandemic. Globally, some countries with the highest daily death rates per capita are located in Latin America, as shown in these graphics. In some Latin American countries, such as Argentina and Chile, there has been a decrease in cases, while other countries, such as Brazil and Peru, are still dealing with a large number of new cases and deaths. In late 2020, the Gamma variant was identified in the Amazon region and rapidly expanded to become the dominant variant across the country. The rapid dissemination of the Gamma variant concurred with an acceleration of COVID-19 transmission in Brazil with a striking number of deaths. In addition, now the, the reports of infection with, with the Delta variant sparked concerns of another way, uh, wave of infections in Brazil caused by the combination of a more transmissible variant uh, that may evade immune response induced by previous infections or incomplete vaccination and a low percentage of fully vaccinated individuals in the, in the, across the countries in the region. Brazil, the most affected, the next one, please. Brazil, the most affected country in Latin America, is also the largest and most populous country, but socioeconomically, it's one of the most unequal. Currently, the country has the third largest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases globally and ranks second worldwide in the number of COVID-19 related deaths. Despite representing only 2.7 of the world population, Brazil accounts for 10% of all COVID-19 cases and 13% of all COVID-19 related deaths worldwide. Next one, please. It is estimated that about 120,000 deaths 
in the first year of the pandemic could have been avoided if Brazil had adopted preventive measures such as social distancing and masking. Nevertheless, Brazil had excess mortality of about 305,000 over the first 12 months of the pandemic. In other words, during this period, there were 305,000 deaths above those expected for the same period based on its historical mortality data in the country. Next one, please. And what are our major challenges? Late Latin American countries have fragile health, health systems that are riddled with chronic problems and lack the critical care resources to respond to COVID-19. After more than a year of the pandemic, the region is still struggling with insufficient diagnostics and late COVID-19 diagnosis, a shortage of ICU beds, essential medications and oxygen, a slow vaccination pace, the use of vaccines with lower efficacy as well as unknown efficacy against the gamma and delta variants, and an insufficient sequencing infrastructure. This scenario may promote the surge of new variants and prolong the high burden of the epidemic in the region, while other nations are already celebrating a semblance of normalcy. Next one, please. Multiple factors are related to virus, virus transmission and COVID-19 clinical presentation at the population and individual levels. None of them will be sufficiently efficacious if performed in isolation. An adequate response to COVID-19 needs to include concerted and articulated government action on economic, social, and health aspects. Next one, please. In resource-constrained settings, the major barriers to successful treatment are insufficient testing, late diagnosis, and provider awareness of best practice, among others. Additionally, if implement injectable COVID-19 treatments are to be necessary, essential infrastructure aspects will need to be addressed. Next one, please. Several potential strategies may help overcome these challenges and successfully reduce virus exposure, the probability of infection, and COVID-19 severity. These include promoting public health measures, increasing healthcare workers' awareness on the importance of early diagnosis, avoiding therapeutic interventions with uncertain or no benefits, and promoting campaigns to raise awareness of treatments 